Hello everybody, the hot stove has boiled over here in Philadelphia today. Uh, it is uh, December 3rd when we were recording. Uh, welcome back to Crossed Up. The Phillies have made their first off-season move or first big off-season move today. So uh, as we promised, Bob Wankel and I, uh, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo, have decided to get together uh, to talk about what the Phillies are doing uh, anytime that there's a, uh, a move or a, a decision, you know, a free agent signing or a trade, as was the case in this instance, uh, to talk about it, and uh, and that's what we have. So it's been a few weeks since we've been together here on Crossed Up. Thanks for uh, sticking with us here in the off season. Um, Bob Phillies make a confirm a trade. It's been talked about the last couple of days, but finalize a deal today just to outline it with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, they trade um, uh, Carlos Santana. Um, J and J.P. Crawford to the Mariners for Gene Segura, uh, Juan Nicasio, and James Pazos. Uh, a couple of relievers there at the end. One Pazos is a lefty, um, and Nicasio a righty. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting trade. I know a lot of people are going. A lot of Phillies fans on social media are really excited about it. They think it's a great trade. Um, you even had put out a tweet that said that you liked the deal. Well done, Matt Clentak. And I'm gonna. <laughs> piss on everybody's cheerios today a little bit but that's right, okay well you know with that said hell of a lead in there and um you know <laughs> before we get started i just i want to point out to everybody we're talking to the hottest the hottest philadelphia sports reporter there is out there right now big Ooh. week for you with the flyers information mr san filippo very oh, well done oh, yeah hell me. yeah I thought, man i thought we were gonna have a guest i don't know oh me uh well thank you uh no that's that's good stuff and uh you know, Russ, Russ and I, all, you know, we've been talking about it since, uh, well, for the last 10 days, really. Um, uh, we knew about it beforehand. We talked about it, you know, in-game on Black Friday. Uh, wrote about it a little bit over that weekend. And then I've been, yeah, I've been a little all over the Ron Hextall story and, and what's happened. So uh, make sure you check out uh, my stuff on Crossing Broad on that if, you're, if you are a multi-sport Philadelphia fan and not just a Phillies fan. Um, and uh, I'm sure Russ and I, we already had one snow the goalie podcast talking about it but that was pre me doing the big expose so i'm sure that our next episode uh will have uh, a lot more about that uh, plus some other fun stuff in the works for snow the goalie as well so yeah, yeah it was, so, it was uh, outstanding so if you haven't read you. it I, I i definitely you know would recommend it that if you haven't checked it out that you get the crossing broad and uh read that piece by anthony now uh as for this trade it's nice to have something to talk about we had originally yeah. planned to discuss uh the rumor mill on sunday night or last night and uh we we decided to hold off and i'm glad that we did because we now know uh quite a bit more about this deal uh, between the Mariners and the Phillies. And so uh, they get Gene Segura, who was an all-star uh, a season ago. He's a guy who's hit at least 300 each of the last three seasons. He's making $60 million between now and 2022, uh, roughly about $15 million a year. And then he has a team option for 2023 with a million-dollar buyout. Um, throw some numbers at you real quick. Since 2006, he was first in batting average among shortstops at 308, fourth in on-base percentage at 353, and 11th in slugging at 449. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show about those numbers. Uh, a lot of that is on the strength of an outstanding 2016 season with the Diamondbacks. But again, he's been solid with Seattle over the last two seasons as well. Um, it, I guess, you know, I tweeted out that I thought that Matt Klintak did a good job, and, and those of you that listen to the show know that I'm not a huge, or I have not been a huge fan of Matt Klintak's uh, over the past couple seasons. 
Um, I, I will say this. I look at it and I go, you've added a guy that that makes good, solid contact. And, and for this team, that is an element to this offense uh, that has been missing. He had the fourth lowest strikeout percentage uh, in all of baseball a year ago. And the Phillies, meanwhile, had the third highest K rate as a team in all of baseball. So I love the contact element that Segura brings. And that's one of the things that I, I really do like about him. I, I know that he's not a power guy. He's really only hit, what, 10 or 11 home runs each of the past couple years, but he did have 29 doubles a season ago, which, by the way, would have been second on the Phillies behind only Reese Hoskins, which is amazing. He actually had one more double than Carlos Santana did in 2018. So while I wouldn't use the word pop uh, to describe his game, uh, he does have a little bit of gap power, and, and you know the doubles have been there the past few seasons. Um, I, I, that's the key element to the deal, so I think we should start with Segura before we get on to Pazos and Nicasio and talk about our boy Carlos Santana and J.P. Crawford. So let's start there. I mean, why are you uh, a little bit more lukewarm on this deal than, than maybe I am? Well, let me let me say first and foremost that my my biggest drawback to this deal uh, it doesn't have anything to do specifically with the players involved. But my biggest concern is that the the, the Phillies I don't think really. I'm I'm so, I'm concerned that there might be a little bit directionless here. And I, I know that might seem like a, a harsh word to use, but G, and and I like the fact, like you, I like the fact that Segura is a contact guy, that he doesn't strike out, right? Uh, gets a lot of hits. I mean, he's a he's a singles hitter, and he goes up the middle, opposite field a lot too. If you look at his spray charts, um, he, he's a little bit all you know. Yeah, he hits a lot of balls on the ground to the pull side, but his, a lot of his hits are back through the box and uh, an opposite field. So th- there are positives in that in that vein. It's kind of the antithesis of everything that we have heard from Matt Clentac and this organization for what they want in a hitter. Over the past few years, it's the complete opposite. You know, they don't. They talk about guys who control the strike zone. Well, well, Gene Segura is not a walker by any stretch of the imagination. Guy does not walk a lot, okay? Um, and and he doesn't strike out a lot. I mean, that's that's for sure. I mean, his his yeah, he struck his, out in ten point nine percent of his at bats last. Although season. that that was the best of his in his career. Um, Correct. Yeah, yeah, I think he was around fourteen percent the year prior. Yeah, previous years he's all he's been around between you know fourteen and sixteen percent. So, um, so anyway, so that but yeah, so last year was certainly his best year with contact. No, no, no doubt about that. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't walk, so he doesn't control the strike zone. Um, he's not a boomer you know boomer bust guy. He's not going to you know hit you the home run or or strike out. And you know the Phillies talked about so much about how. You know, you don't. You're, they should not be afraid of the strikeout. And then they go out and go and the first person that they, the first player that they acquire in the offseason is a guy who doesn't strike out. So my con, my main concern, first and foremost, players aside, they could they could be player A, B, C, D. It doesn't matter to me with who they are. Is if when you break it down fundamentally, this is a player who does not fit the narrative that the Phillies have put said that they're going to use to put together a winning baseball team. It's something completely outside of that, which makes you wonder. Either A, are they finally realizing that what they were thinking and what they were doing is wrong and they're going to turn it around and now go back more toward this style of player, which I would be okay with if, if this is the first yeah, I mean, of many. If, if it's an admission to a mistake, you would almost have to applaud, I think, their, yes. their willingness to adapt. You know, you saw the Red, Se- uh, the Red Sox. They, they 
showed you throughout the postseason there was some value in putting the ball in play, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't an all or nothing proposition. So uh, maybe they looked at that and they said, as they self scouted throughout the course of the 2018 season, looked at the postseason and said, this is an element that we really we need to bring. And that's the way that I'm interpreting it. But go ahead. I hope I, I hope you're right, but I don't think so. I, I don't I don't have any confidence in that. Um, so I like I, and I've been a little worried since the start of the offseason that the Phillies were going to be in on so many different players that it would that they would look like a more like a desperate team than a team that's just willing to spend, quote unquote, stupid money, as John Middleton said. Um, so that's been a in the back of my mind kind of a concern. But let's let's if we really want to look at it, look looking at Segura. Um, yeah, he had the great 2016, and I think that you pointed out that that does elevate uh, a lot of the statistics that we've been hearing about him. Um, but yeah, he is a 300 hitter, but so was Ben Revere. Now I'm not comparing him to Ben Revere; he's better hitter than <laughs> Ben Revere. But I don't want to use that. I don't want to use that as just the oh well, he's a 300 hitter because being a 300 hitter, while I appreciate it, I appreciate the fact that you can get a hit three out of ten times that you come to the plate. Um, I, I want you to do a little bit more than that. And, and I've not really seen in his in his two years in uh, Seattle an opportunity for him to really do that. I think that he's a guy. He steals some bases. I think he stole twenty last year. Stole twenty two the year before. Um, he I did. He could, when he first came up, he was like a 40-steal guy. Um, yeah, so he did he, have that speed. He hasn't stolen as many bases in recent years, though. But I right. think five, I, 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 so, five different times he's – no, I'm sorry, six times in his career he's stolen at least 20 bases. He had a career-high yeah. 44 in 2013 with Milwaukee. Yeah, and I, I wish he would – I mean, if he could get back to that, that would – like, I've always been – I've always felt – and it's it's interesting. Like, there's this stat does not exist because – and I think most advanced stat guys aren't going to create it because they, they're kind of opposed to the stolen base. But like to me, if you're going to get credit for slugging percentage, for getting doubles and triples and you know getting those extra bases, if you could steal a base, that should count in some capacity as well. Because that's, that's, a, that's a base that you are taking that is added on to the way you got on base. So to me, there should be something to that. So you like um, Ben Revere then? Ben Revere wasn't a great base stealer. He stole bases. He wasn't a great base stealer. No, I didn't like Ben Revere because he didn't do anything but get singles. <laughs> yeah, I, he didn't walk. He didn't get doubles, triples, home runs. He didn't do anything. He got a bunch. All of, right. Well, I mean, and 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 listen, I understand what you're saying. I just I looked at what the Phillies did and what they had at shortstop a year ago, and I look at what Segura has done over the past two, three seasons. And and let's eliminate 2016. I'll concede that that certainly looks like an outlier of a season. So let's right. focus more on the past two. Okay. I look at this and I say. Philly shortstops a year ago struck out in 26.2% of their bats, mm-hmm. and they had a 645 OPS. Like, I can live with a, striking out a quarter of your plate appearances if you're getting, a, you know, elite or above average production at the position. But when you post a 645 OPS from that position and you're striking out 26% of the time, that's a real problem. And it's, I don't want to rag on Scott Kingery. I think that last year, let's just chalk it up to a learning experience. Maybe he was up sooner than he should have been. Maybe the he's put more on his plate than they should have. I expect more from him moving forward. So this isn't a knock on Scott Kingery, but if you are trying to win this season, if you're going to tell the fans, we're going for it in 2019, we want to be good the next two, three years, we don't want to wait any longer, then I can't go into next season and, and watch Scott Kingery you know, try to figure out
figure it out. The Phillies just aren't in that place anymore, and I think that's part of the reason why J.P. Crawford's no longer here. So when I look at Segura and the fact that, yeah, he puts the ball in play, yes, he's a 300 hitter, yes, there is some doubles potential there, yeah, he can swipe a few bags, I think it just brings a different element and more of a sure thing to the table, and I think that this team can use that for sure. That's the biggest thing that I see. Now, I know that you want to talk about his defense because— before we get, oh, to the go defense, ahead. Yeah, before go ahead. We get to the, I got a few other things before we get to the defense. So here's here's now where we got we have to actually start talking about the other players involved in the trade. So the first one that I want to do a comparison to is Carlos Santana. So well, Anthony, how can you compare Gene Segura to Carlos Santana? And you're you're right, 100 percent right. This is a vast improvement statistically, offensively, offensively at shortstop over what you had last year. There's no doubt about it. But there's got to, and I'm sure that the Phillies are going to do other things. So this isn't, we can't just look at this move in a vacuum. And, and I can't, I can't use this as a guarantee to be a disaster. That's why I'm kind of just like, let's hold the, let's, let's hold our excitement for a minute here with this trade. Um, and, and, and I'm not killing it, but at the same time, I'm like, whoa, let's hold it. Hold on a second. He compares offensively pretty close other than the walks. But if you look at, I mean, on base and, and, um, and uh, OPS, um, and you know, even the doubles, like you had already mentioned, he had one more than Santana. He compares pretty, pretty close to Santana, right? I mean, gets more hits, better batting average, doesn't walk as much, but his on base is going to be pretty close to Santana. Um, and uh, hit is about the same number of doubles, doesn't have Santana's power. But, you know, kind of kind of replaces that with the fact that he's going to get a few more singles. Okay, he's going to get on base. He's going to get a few more hits. You're going to point out that you're getting that same production from a shortstop, whereas Santana's a first baseman, though, right? Because that well, does well, matter. Well, no, I get that. I get that. And so what you're doing is you're putting Hoskins back at first base. who was He was already in your lineup. So ultimately, this is going to come down to how much better than Carlos Santana is your left fielder next year. That's what this is going to come down to, because that's what your lineup is going to. That's what your lineup is going to be. Or maybe not that. Maybe you sit there and say, "How much better is your left fielder going to be than Scott Kingery?" Well, <laughs> well, I mean, you don't we, know. I mean, we, we, we don't, don't know. know. Uh, if, if it yeah. happens to be Bryce Harper, uh, the answer to that becomes big... uh, significantly so. So sure, sure, yes, okay. Sure. But I mean, that, that, so that's what I'm saying. Is like it's it's almost as if. What you traded away, one part of what you traded away, um, is what you got back. Granted, you just shifted the numbers to a different position, but now you still have to you still have to improve. Like if you go with the lineup that, obviously, this is the, what they have right now is not what the lineup's going to be on opening day. But if at the moment, if you go with who you would expect to be your eight starters, there's not much difference in the lineup right now with Segura in place of Santana. Let me tell you something. Uh, a friend of a friend of mine texted me today. Said like, "Here's my lineup, right? I, this is like how I figure it's going to shake out." And he actually had um, he had Harper in it. Like, so this is the assumption that they signed Harper. And he goes, um, I, "I think that Nick Williams is in the starting lineup." And I go, "Oh." And uh, he said, "Michael Franco, starting third baseman." I said, "I just don't, I don't see that. Like, no, I think I don't. Either. I think that this makeover is going to be so drastic. I expect." I expect them to make. 
I think that there's still another two or three guys that are going to be in the opening day starting lineup that aren't here right now. You know, and, and whether that is Manny Machado or Bryce Harper, I don't know. But I still think that there's going to be another two players that we do not currently have on this roster yet. That's that's my guess. I really think that they want to move on from several of these guys. And I think that Cesar Hernandez, if the market wasn't flooded with middle infield types, second baseman specifically, he would be gone. Now, I just don't know if there's going to be value in a deal there for him. And so he may be back but I don't know. I really I really don't know how it's going to shape up. So you're right. I mean, listen, the, the production with Segura and Santana, what is the, what's the offset going to be in who they add? That's going to be the key to this whole thing. Because right. as is, even if they go out and just get a, you know, a, a Patrick Corbin who we'll talk about in a few minutes, that's not going to be the difference here. You know, like they have, they have significant ground to make up behind Atlanta. That was not a fluke what we saw happen in August and September of last season. Were the Phillies that bad? Probably not but the Braves are for real and you know they're out there making moves and and they're strengthening and bolstering that team ahead of 2019 so the Phillies have to close the gap and and Gene Segura alone or and with Jeff uh, I'm sorry with James Pazos or Pazos and uh, you know uh, Juan Nicasio that's that's not going to do it so I think that it it almost goes without saying that there's got to be more that happens here I, I do want to talk about the defense and and let me kind of get this point in first and then I'll I'll let you go because I know that that we disagree about this a little bit. Oh um, yeah. You know, I, you had said that that people are kind of putting out there that he's an above average uh, defensive infielder and I actually may have used that that terminology when I first started talking about the deal last night. I guess that's probably a little bit of a reach. The way You're that not I alone, look at though. You're not alone. Yeah, I, I know, but did the same thing today and so did a couple other people. And that probably is a stretch. Um, I would say that he's probably a league average infielder. Um, When we look at defensive run save, and we talked about that particular statistic quite a bit last season, if we just use that model, and I know that you're going to have a response to this in a minute, but if we just go by that model, the Phillies shortstops last year were a negative 33 in defensive run save, which was either last or second or third last in baseball. I mean, it was at the very, very bottom. Uh, so they did not get good defensive play from Scott Kangaroo or J.P. Crawford when he played shortstop uh, by that particular metric. Um Gene Segura, however, was a plus five. In three of the five years that he has played primarily shortstop, he did have one season in which he played a lot of second base, uh, he has been positive in defensive run saves. So the way that I look at it is, is he an elite defender? No. But again, based on what they had a season ago, he should be better. That, I think, would be the way that I look at it. I also don't know that he's even going to play shortstop on this team. That's the other thing that we have to take into consideration. If you believe Jim Salisbury or some of the other reports floating around out there, this guy might be playing second base. So I don't even know if this is worth having a conversation about. But as it is, he's their shortstop. So, you know, we'll we'll take it for what it's worth at the moment. If he ends up being the second baseman, I'm going to take everything back that I'm about to say. Because the one, the one full season he played second base, and he played primarily second base in 2016, which was his really great year with Arizona, he actually was a good fielding second baseman. Um, 985 fielding percentage at second base was actually pretty solid. Only nine errors and 610 chances. Um, that's pretty good. Right, I mean that's that's a pretty solid number. So, and I I, I think and like you know we've talked pre- previously to the show. You had mentioned, you know, there's a possibility in your mind that you know maybe not this year, but you know in two three years down the road, that Gene Segura is your regular second baseman on this team and not your regular shortstop. 
and that's okay. If if he ends up being a second baseman, I'm I'm okay with it. But let's let's look at what where he's gone as a shortstop in the last th- three years that he's played shortstop. Uh, his fielding percentage in the last three years of shortstop: nine sixty nine, nine sixty two, nine sixty nine. That's not good. None of them are good. They're all below league average. In 2015, the league average was 974. In 2017, it was 975. And this year, this past year, 2018, was 971, which lets you know that fielding has become a, a problem all over baseball with, for whatever reason uh, that we won't get into right now when you see that the league average is plummeting four points uh, <laughs> from what it used to be. Um, but anyway, he's st- still below league average. So I, how they determine the defensive run saved, I'm not going to sit here and try and figure out. Yeah, and I always wonder if there was a little bit of a bias against the Phillies last year. I mean, when you look across the board, and certainly the eye test told you that they were one of the worst defensive teams you've ever seen in this city, uh, for sure. But, I mean, they were woeful across the board in that metric. And, um, you know, I I just look at Gene Segura and go, he was 38 runs better in that category than what the Phillies had a year ago. 38. And so, it just... I, I don't think that you're getting Ozzie Smith and, and, you know, with the bat of, of Alex Rodriguez here. You know, I'm not trying to oversell what this guy is, but we are talking about an all-star player replacing just well below league average output, both defensively by certain metrics and certainly offensively across well, the board. And certainly by certain metrics. I'm glad you qualified that because Scott Kingery had a better fielding percentage at shortstop than Gene Segura did. Yeah, and, and when we talked to uh, the guys over at Sports Info Solutions, one of the things they had talked about was the throw accuracy of Scott Kingery was one of the things that really hurt him. And now, I don't remember, having watched the games, you never really looked at Scott Kingery and said, you know, wow, what an arm. You know, or you right. wouldn't have said, what a tremendously accurate arm. But I don't remember him being, you know, terrible in that regard. But I know that was one of the things that hurt him. Again, I, I don't know about in terms of range, if that, how much of that played into it. He did get better as the year went on, for sure. You know, Scott Kenry, by the end of the season, had turned into what I would call a functional shortstop defensively. Uh, uh, but, but my God, the beginning was, was a rough go. And here's something, here's something else I want to say about Segura defensively. Um, if you go back and look at his defensive statistics when he was with Milwaukee, um, he played this very similar number of games. 2013, he played 144. 2014, he played 144. 2015, 140. And then you compare it to this past year with Seattle, 144. So very, very similar numbers at shortstop, the number of games he played at that position. And he had better numbers in Milwaukee than he did in Seattle. But he also had a significant number of more chances in those in those seasons with Milwaukee. A 673, 643, 622, and he only had 545 last year in Seattle. Again, I think that has a lot to do with where he's being positioned on the field. And so maybe he's the kind of guy, when you really look at it and you sit there and say, he's probably better at the position if you let him play the position the way he was brought up to play the position, it was traditionally played, you know, just play that spot. But when you start sliding him over, okay, we want you to play behind the bag at second or go a little further into the hole or whatever, whatever defensive, you know, realignment you're doing, you know, based off of your spray chart data that to defend against the opposing hitter, 
it may be affecting him enough to go from being a 978 fielder with Milwaukee to a 962 fielder with Seattle. I mean, that, so that could be a, well. You know, we talked about that. That's that's a good point. And we talked about that with the Phillies' defensive struggles in in 2018. We kind of speculated. I wonder how much the extreme positioning impacts the ability to make the routine play. So certainly you would see the opportunities are going to be down not only because of not not only because of defensive positioning but really the game has changed so much in in even the last two or three four yeah. years. Yeah, I mean the priority is not hitting ground balls to the middle infield anymore. So right. you know, you're going to see a natural decline that way as well. And it's it's definitely a good point. Now, I know the one thing that you cannot argue about this deal. And my tweet uh, just to kind of summarize it was not only are you getting a, an upgrade at the shortstop position and not only are you getting out from Carlos Santana's contract but you're getting Reese Hoskins out of left field and back to first base and I can't stress enough how important I think that is um you know I just I feel bad for Reese Hoskins and I I, I don't want to I don't want this to come across as a criticism of him because I don't really think it was his fault, but he was an absolutely terrible defensive left fielder. Um, he had no ability to break on balls in front of him. Um, he His positioning, I think the Phillies had to overcompensate for his lack of range, and I think his positioning oftentimes cost them quite a bit. Um, just really not an instinctive left fielder, and he wasn't supposed to be an outfielder, so of course that's really not that much of a surprise. Again, to go back to defensive run save, though, negative 24 in left field last season was nine runs worse than the second uh, the second worst in that category, which was Derek Dietrich, who had negative 15 defensive runs saved. So, you know, I just I look at this and I say the fact that you could put a scarecrow in left field next season and probably get the same defense, <laughs> this is a huge deal for this team. I mean, Philly's pitching, as good as it was for, you know, the first five months of the season – Think about how much they had to overcome because of their lack of defense, both in the infield and in the outfield. So to get Reese Hoskins back to first base where he's not going to actively kill you defensively, I think is a huge plus for this, for well, this it team. Does, it, that, that does help, but that doesn't necessarily – I mean, you could have done that – you could have traded Carlos Santana to wherever you traded him, and that would have helped, right? I mean, you, you could have – I could basically say to you, Bob – I, Phillies trade Carlos Santana and the team that takes him is willing to take on his $20 million contract and all the Phillies get back are a couple of minor league players and you would say to me that's huge because they get Reese Hoskins back to first base, right? Sure, and a lot of this has to do with corresponding moves. I mean, the, the, the part of this, though, is, and I know that Seattle's technically saving money long term. I mean, Seguro is due $60 million over the next four seasons. Um, Nicasio, I believe, is scheduled to make $9.25 million. So you're getting Carlos Santana in return for $35 million. So their financial obligations have been significantly lessened over the next handful of years. So that's the gain for the Mariners in this one. Um, but I I don't know how many teams were lining up to, to take on Carlos Santana, uh, you know, in the remainder of his contract for a couple of low-level prospects. I mean, was that deal out there? We don't know that. So that's part of it. I just look at it and say, you had an opportunity to go out, get a couple, what could possibly be, I'll use the word intriguing bullpen pieces, because Pazos is not going to be a lights-out guy, and Nicasio, I don't believe, is going to be a lights-out guy for you either. But to get back a usable part at shortstop and then clear that Santana money, I'm all right with that. Um, and I just think, again, this paves the way to add an outfielder. I just think they're going in that direction. Um, but we'll see. So that is the ancillary benefit 
the, is the way I see it in, in this deal. I, I also have a problem we haven't even discussed. Just giving up on J.P. Crawford at this point. Yeah, you want to get into Crawford before we talk about Santana? <laughs> yeah, I love Santana. I'm so, I'm so sad to lose Carlos Santana. He was so much of our content last yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I get it. I mean, and, and I know that, you know, you're, you're, you were frustrated with him, and I wasn't as frustrated, although I did eventually get to see your point a little bit. But, I mean, if you really, if you really break down Santana's season, take away April, May through September was typical Carlos Santana, right? I mean, the yeah. rest of the season was what he usually does. So I mean, you, you got what you you got what you paid for, with the exception of the opening month of the season. The, the biggest problem for Carlos Santana is that he was put in the middle of an order, and he was asked to be ultra productive in a lineup that really just didn't have a lot of talent that was young and not very good and so people looked at him to, to be a guy that was going to knock in you know well over 100 runs and you know have an OPS up in the 800s and maybe hit 260 and like that didn't materialize and when it didn't materialize he was an easy target you know Carlos Santana's shortcomings a year ago weren't really on Carlos Santana it was on the Phillies for bringing a guy that never really fit the puzzle to begin with in and I get why they did it. They wanted the veteran leadership, the presence, maybe teach some of their younger guys about approach and, and all of that. But it never really made sense to begin with, in my view. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't have, you know, negative feelings about Carlos Santana. But I also, I mean, I never had super positive feelings about Carlos Santana. I question. I wonder if the Phillies are going to say, yeah, we it was a, it was a mistake on our part to bring him in for sixty million dollars last year. Well, I think that this and, this move is sort of an admission to that. You talked about well, them being directionless it? at the top of the show. I mean, you know, okay, so you commit to Carlos Santana, and by the end of the last season, you haven't taken ground balls at third base, and then two months later, he's out of town. So, do do they really? I mean, that would I actually would say would be some evidence to your point in the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about yeah. J.P. Crawford. You don't want to give up on a uh, 24-year-old who will be 24 next season? You don't want to give up on him after 225 major league at-bats? No, I mean, I don't think it's enough. I, I don't think he was given a real fair shake. And yeah, injuries kind of played into it a little bit. Um, but I mean, you know, after a terrible start last year, even if it was a small sample, he actually did a pretty good job, um, uh, you know, uh, offensively, I, I kind of feel like, you know, at, at, in his 23-year-old season, having, I think, what was his OPS? 7-12, I believe? 7-12, a 333 on base percentage. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, despite so, only hitting 214. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't bad. I mean, you know, uh, Segura's OPS when he was 24-25 was 614-616. I mean... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, you wait till you get to, you know, and I know you sit there, well, we're not patient enough to wait till 20, you know, his age 27 season for him to finally break out. I kind of get that, but I, I, I also don't, you know, I, I also don't like throwing away a guy who was a top prospect. The reason the guy was a top prospect, there was a reason he was a top prospect for some, you know, a lot of scouts thought he was really good. Um, and he wasn't, like I said, wasn't really given that real chance to play the position at the major league level. And I understand sometimes you're going to have to trade away prospects for players. I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the game, but I, I don't necessarily know if you're trading away, if you should be trading away a guy who was viewed for so long by so many as a guy who is a real 
top-end ta- major league p- potential major league talent, and you're trading him away for Gene Segura. <laughs> yeah, well, and one of the things that people have said is that J.P. Crawford or Gene Segura is what you hoped J.P. Crawford to become, and I don't know that I agree with that. Um, I don't at all. Because J.P. Crawford's whole thing is about advanced approach, pitch selection, yep. uh, the ability to work counts, get on base, draw walks. And, and as we've talked about, that's not Gene Segura's game. So maybe when you look at overall uh, you know, OPS and, and certain numbers that way in terms of overall offensive value, maybe you could make some comps there. But really, they're not similar in terms of their approach. So I don't know that that's necessarily true, and I think that that's an oversimplification at best and just flat-out wrong at worst. I agree with you in that J.P. Crawford I don't think was really given a fair shake here. I just think that this is more about the context of where the team is at right now, and I think that they feel as if, though, they need to go. They have Scott Kingery, who I think they believe in more. I think that was very apparent uh, throughout the course of last season. And at this point, they kind of look at it and go, okay, well, we we don't need this piece. Like, we don't think that J.P. Crawford's going to be what we initially thought he might become four years ago, number one. And number two, we feel like we have a guy that can play these positions in Kingery. So when you look at it that way, I, I get where the Phillies are coming from. Now, fans are just totally overlooking this because they go, well, the guy is a bust. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to be a bust. I actually think that J.P. Crawford's going to become a functional Major League Baseball player. Uh, um, so yeah, I think that down the road, we might look at this and go, Oh, that, that deal wasn't necessarily as lopsided as we, we thought it was in, you know, December of 2018. I agree with you to that extent. Again, there's so much of this just plays into what are they going to do next? If Gene Segura and Manny Machado return in double plays this summer at Citizens Bank Park, like I'm really not going to think a whole hell of a lot about JP Crawford. Right. Right. But I mean, I, I mean, I think that the reason that Seattle was so you know adamant about Crawford being part of this deal is because I think you know Jerry Depoto looks at it and says yeah you know this is a guy that's going to come in here and 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 be a good player for us um and be you know and be a part of the the future of the Mariners I don't think that they look at him as just a placeholder I think that you know you know, the Santana, yeah, they bring him in, but, you know, he's, he's probably a guy that they look to move during the season, you know, because somebody's going to want an on-base guy, uh, as a, you know, probably in the American League as a DH or if somebody gets a, an injury at first base or whatever, and then the Mariners can flip him. But I think that they look at this and say Crawford's the linchpin, and that's who they, that's who they wanted, and that's who they're going to, you know, J.P. Crawford's going to be the starting shortstop, and he's going to get an opportunity to play, for a full season for um, for the Mariners, and play in a ballpark that I think might benefit him in a lot of ways. That that ballpark plays big, um, and that's another thing that I wanted to mention about Segura. I, I you know, I, I, I go back to that. You're gonna laugh at me, but you know, uh, I, I, you're a Fangraphs guy, right? Yeah, I love Fangraphs. Sure. You love Fangraphs, right? Yeah, that's great. I, and I think that they have some really nice projection. Um, uh, algorithms for teams, I mean, for players. If you look, if you look at their projections year over year, I mean, they don't get them all right, obviously, but they don't, and they also don't get them all wrong. And they're they're projecting Segura now, now that he's with the Phillies and getting out of that ballpark. Uh, they're projecting him more because it's not as not as spacious an outfield that he's going to be playing in uh, in Citizens Bank Park. 
At, here's the numbers that they have him, the steamer has him at. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. 279 batting average, 324 on base, 399 slugging. Yeah, so he's uh, like a shade over 700 in OPS there. 723. The 723 yeah. OPS. And JP Crawford, do you have that in front of you? Uh, let me, uh, Is that where you're going here? Or? Give me a yeah. second. No, I didn't. I, you know, I didn't. I didn't do the Crawford. It's one interesting when you look at park factors. Uh, Safeco has, has historically been one of the better pitchers' parks um, throughout pa- the course. For, yeah, for, for pop, power. Yeah, for power. Uh, yeah, in just terms of generating overall runs, but you're right. It doesn't always it doesn't always quite work that way. Sometimes the tighter yards actually can you know provide yeah. a, a disadvantage for guys that are more contact single oriented. Uh, so Crawford, they have at two twenty seven, three twenty two, three sixty six. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy that. You know? so yeah, six eighty-eight. Uh, that sounds about right for JP Crawford. But but you notice that the, the the difference now between the two, how much closer it is. You know what I wonder about, and uh, I I don't really want to speculate, so I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm about to say. Uh, you have a guy that that was formerly a top prospect in, uh, in Crawford, and it didn't, it has not panned out uh, to this point for him. He really struggled at the minor league level. Um, you know, right before his promotion, he, he was completely lost and he never really found a rhythm in Philadelphia. I, I just wonder, is there anything more to it than just production? You know, we watched him and we said, well, he's the shortstop of the future. And he never really got a chance to play shortstop. The Phillies seem to always favor Kingery at shortstop over Crawford, which was sort of peculiar. And when we talk about him not getting a fair shake... Was there more than than what we saw in terms of reasoning for that? You know what I'm what I'm saying? Like, was there any? I don't want to say like off the field stuff because by all counts he's never really been any in any trouble or anything like that. But I just wonder if the organization looked at like work ethic or, or some other part of his game that rubbed them the wrong way because they really, for as patient as they were with certain players over the past couple seasons, they didn't demonstrate that same patience with Crawford. No, and I don't know. I don't understand. Or am I why. nuts? Am I nuts? Well, no, you're not. And that's that's my that's like my concern. With that goes back to my original concern that I mentioned at the top of this when we first started talking about it, is that I I really am not a hundred percent sure that the Phillies have a good plan in what they're doing. And, and you know another thing, and, and, and I, you know I don't want to drift completely off subject here, but I think it's I think it's fair to at least say it in this in this way. Um, you know, the Phillies spent, they spent years, the previous few years telling us about how they're going to, you know, acquire these prospects and groom these prospects to build for the future. And now, I mean, this is just one move, but instead of giving those prospects an opportunity, now it's like, well, we're going to trade them away, uh, to get another player. And then we're going to go big in free agency. So you, you basically there's a philosophical shift that's that's happening somewhere, and I don't. Yeah, know I mean the one thing that, that the one thing you never got out of this rebuild was this this you know fleet of young talent that was you know going to come up through the system together and kill it, and then you know there were going to be a couple big free agent acquisitions. I think that was the plan that that we thought was going to unfold over the past few seasons, and it didn't materialize yeah. that way. Like the Cubs, it was. Look at all of this young talent we have. They're all killing it. Now we're going to go out and add on top of that. Whereas the Phillies sort of have used their payroll flexibility to, 
it looks like they're going to use their payroll flexibility more to bring in higher guns and then hope that the farm system can kind of serve as a supplementary right but going you know, to, they've suddenly that's what i'm saying they've suddenly changed gears. yeah yeah they've, you're right they've gone they've gone from being a team that's going to build with youth and just add those free agents to now basically with the exception of nola and hoskins is now being built on the fly with known commodities you know right. through trades and free agency um and i don't i don't know how you can suddenly just shift course as a general manager or as a philosophical approach as a team, like, how do you just suddenly change like that? And that's why I'm, I'm worried. You know, they didn't give Crawford a chance. Ah, just send him out, and we'll bring in a guy who's got some good numbers offensively, and and he'll help if we do some other things right. But you know, we we you because know, we want to. We're tired of losing. We're tired of losing for seven years in a row or six years in a row. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a fair concern. Um, yeah. Before we move on, let's just uh, touch on the uh, two relievers that the Phillies got in this deal. Uh, let's start with Juan Nicasio. He's been around a little bit, and uh, he actually had a, a glorious two-game stint with the Phillies uh, back in 2017. He actually yep. had a really good 2017 season. Um, let's take a look at this here. He had a let's see, a two six one ERA, yeah. uh, two nine eight FIP. Uh, the WHIP was under one point one. He had a really strong twenty seventeen. Then he went out and he signed a two year seventeen million dollar deal with the Mariners uh, ahead of last season, and it was a disaster for him there. He went one and six, which isn't really the biggest problem, but he had to pitch to a six ERA. Uh, and really ran into a lot of bad luck. He had knee trouble. He was shut down in August of last season to have his knee scoped out and cleaned up, uh, and it really just did not work for him at all. Uh, Scott Service with the Mariners had, had kind of talked at one point, uh, read an article today from last season, which he had said that he was one of the unluckiest pitchers in baseball, which I'm sure that everybody listening to this show will be really excited to hear about. Uh, his FIP and ERA were completely out of whack. Despite the six ERA, his FIP was actually Actually, two nine nine a season oh, ago. So I, don't care. I, don't I, I know you don't, but the Phillies do, care. and the Phillies have, have. You know, when we looked at Tommy Hunter, they, that was one of the biggest things in evaluating his season last year. Uh, the, the Phillies talked about how unlucky he was, so they clearly um, see some value in that. The FIP actually stacked up very similarly to twenty seventeen. It was two eight nine two years ago, two nine nine last year. Okay, so. but, let me, but let me let me just talk about that for a second. Okay, fielding fielding independent pitching. Okay. Basically, the, this is an, ER, an ERA, quote unquote, that is put together based off of you know how you, how often you're basically striking people out. I, there's no other real way to describe it, right? And not walking I mean, guys, which he did, and not, and not walking guys. Okay, so let's look at let's look at Juan Nicasio. Last year, in 42 innings, which was the fewest number of innings he's ever thrown in a season. Okay, because he was hurt. Yes, because he was hurt. So it's only 42 innings. He, he uh had the highest strikeout rate of his career, which, of course, every pitcher now in baseball has the highest strikeout rate of his career. And for the first time ever, he was not a guy who walked walked people. So he threw strikes. He threw strikes. But in the process of throwing strikes, he gave up a lot of hits. He gave up 53 hits in 42 innings. He was averaging 11.4 hits per nine innings, the worst of his career. That was so just bad luck. There, bad luck. <laughs> He's throwing the ball right over the place, throwing cookies up there. So that's why I have a problem with it. It's like, look, and I he could he revert back to 2017? He could, 
But if you go back and look over his career prior to 2017, from 2011 to 2016, he was mediocre at best, bad at worst. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was a starter um, with for Colorado. the first two or three seasons of his career yeah. with Colorado, and then he he went to the Dodgers and kind of started to morph into a reliever. Yeah, uh, right around what 2015. So he's really been doing the reliever thing for four four years now. You know, listen. I think that Juan Acasio's inclusion in this deal is more the Mariners looking to offset some of the money, right? Yeah, like probably. the guy's scheduled to make $9.25 million this season, and I think that they're basically looking at it and going, it did not work out for this guy here a season ago. We do not want to pay him close to $10 million next year. You're going to take him. And the Phillies are going to say, hey, listen, you know, he, he had an okay season two years ago. We know him a little bit. He was here, albeit briefly. What the hell? You know, when you look at the volatility of relievers, maybe we get the guy that we saw two years ago and, and not the one that we saw last season. So I think that that's really what the inclusion of, of Nicasio in this deal is, is about uh, on the Phillies' end. Uh, I want to touch a little bit on James Pazos, who has a, a hell of a mustache. I don't know if you've seen it yes, yet, but I'm does. in love with it. And so this guy doesn't even have to really be good, and, and I'm all in because simply <laughs> he's uh, got a phenomenal mustache. Um, a, a little bit about him. He was drafted by the Yankees. Uh, he, I'm sorry, actually, he was originally drafted by the, the Rays uh, in the 2009 draft, um, but then he was redrafted by the Yankees in 2012. Uh, just did a, a little brief background on him he is a hard-throwing lefty he relies almost solely on his fastball he threw it 91 percent of the time last season uh he does as i said he's velocity's there in the mid 90s he can actually touch 98 99 uh, with it it has a little bit of sink action to it uh really strange thing about him last season he struggled uh against lefties uh, as a left-handed reliever uh, and was dominant against righties. So in 2018, um, if you take a look at this to lefties, he allowed a 440 slugging percentage and an 800 OPS to right-handed hitters. But in 2017, he allowed a 269, I'm sorry, to left-handed hitters. In 2017, he allowed a 269 slugging percentage and a 561 OPS. So he was really good two years ago, um, you know, on one side, and, and then last year it kind of flipped and it reversed. So I don't really know what to make of him. Um, he's just he's a hard throwing lefty in his mid twenties. It, it sounds like somebody worth taking a shot at. You mean he's Adam Eaton? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, he, he, Adam Eaton? No, she's <laughs> Adam Morgan? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. Adam Morgan. That's yeah, right. Adam Eaton. Christ, no, Adam God, no, <laughs> no. He, God, no. He's Adam Morgan. That's yeah, why. Please, please don't do that to me. I mean, he was moderately successful last year. Two eight eight ERA in fifty innings pitched, forty seven hits allowed. Uh, you know, not a lot of strikeouts, and that's the thing. He only struck out 8.1 uh, batters per nine innings, and I think a lot of that has to do with he really doesn't have a secondary pitch. Um, right. Hitters only hit, I believe, 089 against his slider two seasons ago in 2017, but last year they batted about 250 against it. He seems like he's kind of a one-pitch guy, and it's it's like almost like a here it is, if it, you know, see what you can do with it type of mentality. The walks weren't terrible, only 2.7 walks per nine. He kept the ball in the yard, less than one home run per nine innings. So that's all really encouraging, and only eight and a half hits per nine. So yeah. th that stuff's all really good, but this is not a guy that, that's going to be locking up the ninth inning for you, I don't think. But he does seem like a usable part. His splits are really weird, though. And uh, I, I, I don't know I'll, what you're going to get out of him. I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what he is. I'll tell you what he is. He's... Luis Avalon, but with options left. 
and a super, and he's a super two. Yeah, what is he? Is he under team control through twenty twenty three? I believe. Yeah. 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 So I mean, so so there. That's what. That's what he. So he basically replaces that. He kind of gives you. He kind of gives you some some flexibility to you know hey if you, if we don't have a roster spot for him we can send him down you know that kind of thing and you know do what we got to do with him in that regard so um, that's the positive with with Pazos and and who knows maybe he you know gets a little bit more confident in that slider. Maybe he yeah, like, works on an, on something else. Like right-handed pitch. hitters against him last year hit 228 with a 288 on base percentage. I mean, that's that's pretty damn good. But then they hit 280 from the left side with a 360 on base percentage. And like apparently, I said, the, the year prior was like a complete reverse of that. Apparently his his fastball is more like a running fastball. Mm-hmm. So it kind of ta- it kind of tails out over the plate for lefties. Uh, where it gets it gets in on the right hander a little bit, um, and so I think that's probably why you're seeing that r- the right hander struggled a little bit more than the lefties did. He's got to have to probably work on pitch location. It's uh, actually uh, it's it's interesting. Statcast refers to that fastball as a sinker. Um, that's okay. how they categorize it. But then yeah. Fangrass will they they call it a, a straight regular four seam fastball. So. I don't know. A little bit of a wild card there with him. He's a, he's an intriguing yeah. piece. I mean, considering that the Phillies really, we certainly lamented this quite a bit in 2018. They they did not have reliable left-handed relievers, um, and, and apparently, you know, they they have interest in in that market over you know this winter as well. So we'll see what ends up happening, and whether it be Andrew Miller or, or Zach Britton or whatever direction they may end up going, but. This this looks like a serviceable piece uh, on the return, and kind of what what'll be overlooked, I'm sure, as we all talk about Segura here. Yeah, just uh, just uh, people may have heard me say that I lose you there. I, you actually cut out for a second. Uh, I okay. hope that I hope I hope yeah. that the, I hope that the audio continued to record you, and I just didn't hear you. Yeah, okay, no uh, <laughs> problem. It was like about two three seconds of of silence on my end, yeah. but. Uh, that's okay, no problem. It's just you know these technical glitches happen when we record podcasts. It's part it's part of the business. Um, yeah, I mean I don't know. I it, it, James Pazos is a guy to me. He's, yeah. he's just he's just a guy, and and we'll see we'll see what he does. And there's nothing wrong with having a bunch of guys that you know maybe could possibly be something for you at some point during the season. I mean you see how teams manage bullpens now with guys being run up and down from the minors into the majors, and you end up using you know, 20 relief pitchers a season now. So, you know, if he's part of that rotation, then he's part of that rotation. And if he gives you 40 innings, he gives you 40 innings. So I don't think we can get through a, a Phillies free agency podcast without really talking about Machado and Harper. And this is what I, I sort of want to close with. Jim Salisbury says that the, the Phillies – have significant interest in, in pairing up Machado and Segura. That, that, that's the direction that they want to go. Uh, John Heyman came out last night as this Segura thing was breaking and said that he hears that the Phillies are making Bryce Harper their primary target. Uh, Bob Nightingale said that they're in on Patrick Corbin, who, who we haven't really talked a whole lot about as well. I mean, where, and not only Corbin, but that they're in on Machado and Harper too. Like, <laughs> all things are on the table here. Between Machado and, and Harper, which way are you leaning at this point in light of how this offseason has played out? Harper, but I trust Salisbury more than I trust the national guys. Uh, the national guys, I think, are talking to agents, and I think Salisbury's talking to Philly, the people in the Phillies organization. So when I hear, when I read Salisbury say, 
that the Phillies are going to try and get Machado and convince him to be their third baseman. I believe that more than I believe what, you know, and no disrespect to those guys. I mean, Bob Nightingale was all over this trade and, uh, you know, Rosenthal always has good stuff and Morosi and, and Heyman and um, who am I missing? Uh, somebody. There's, uh, I know I'm missing another big name Major League <laughs> Baseball guy. Anyway. They're all interchangeable at this point. Right. But the point is, is that I think that they spend more time talking to agents because they'll get more information for, about more players and more teams because an agent represents X number of players. So you talk to the agents, the agents kind of give you an idea who they're talking to. That's why we always see, oh, you know, we know that five teams are in on this guy. Well, really? Did you talk to all five teams or did you make one phone call to the agent and the agent told you the five teams that are in on them? See what I'm saying? So like, Sure. Uh, so ultimately, when it comes down to, for us, the benefit is having a really good uh, baseball writer in town who's clued in with the team. And, you know, no no offense to Zalecki or, or, you know, Matt Gelb, Matt Breen, any of those guys, they all do a nice job too. But I think that Salisbury is far and shoulder, head and shoulders above everyone else. And I think that he's pretty plugged in. So when he says it's Machado, it's probably Machado. But I, I would, maybe it's my, maybe it's me saying I would rather see them go get Harper than Machado if I had to pick between the two. I, um, I think that we've spent so much time reading, talking, discussing Manny Machado versus Bryce Harper that I think we understand what each of them are or what each of them could be moving forward. I think that everyone kind of agrees that that we want one of them. I think that some of the outrage over Manny Machado's dirty October has sort of subsided now, and they're looking at it and saying, like, this guy can flat out play. We We certainly could use him. I will tell you how I feel about this, and, and this is really where I have I've sort of think I'm concluding my stance on this. If the Phillies sign Manny Machado and that news breaks, I'm going to go, holy shit, that's awesome, good stuff, I'm excited. If the Phillies sign Bryce Harper, I am going to freak out. Like, my excitement level, and, and I know that might sound a little bit weird because, like, I guess I'm supposed to be, like, impartial, some impartial observer here. Like, I want the Phillies to win. And, uh, you know, the fan element to this, it would – I'd be just to the moon if they signed Bryce Harper with excitement. I'd be all in. And so I just know that, like, if I were to absorb the news of one of these signings, my reaction, I think, would be much more excited – if it were Harper. And that's sort of where I've kind of come to after really thinking about this now for two months. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with you. Um, that said, I'm not convinced either one of them's coming here. I know you had, uh, you had mentioned that in the last podcast and I, I certainly, I certainly get that. Um, you know, the Phillies have been linked to these guys all along, but you just wonder how much of this is all about leverage from the agents, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, because you know there are other teams who are going to be hardcore in on these guys. And you know these guys probably have, you know, um, places that they want to be. Um, there's been a lot of hinting, you know, I, I think by Harper um, that like he likes Chicago. Um, there's been a lot of hinting by Machado that he likes New York. So it makes you wonder if those cities don't have an inherent advantage if they can get somewhere close to the same money that the Phillies are willing to spend. 
So I, I you know, I, I just have these concerns that they might not end up with either one. And the Phillies have made themselves a willing, willing participant to these agents like Scott Boris in terms of of using them as leverage. I mean, they basically said, you know, we we want to we want to do this. We want to spend our money. We want to go out and make the big splash. I mean, these agents have to be going. Thank you. You know, yeah. we, we appreciate it. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, the winter meetings start next week. I hope that we have some finality to this. We, we get some clarity to this over the next 10 days or so because the, the waiting game here and, and trying to figure out which direction the, these two guys are going, I, I think that even if the Phillies miss out on them, which will be terrible, at least then that will allow the rest of the market to kind of unfold. And I think that, that observers of this, this process are ready for that to happen. Um, I guess before we get out of here, we sort of skipped over Patrick Corbin. Uh, you know, I just talked about being excited if they sign Manny Machado, being to the moon if they sign Bryce Harper. Uh, I'll tell you what my reaction to uh, Patrick Corbin would be. C- cool, I-, I-, I guess. You know, I-, I think that's how I kind of feel about Patrick Corbin. I think the Phillies need to upgrade their starting rotation. I think they need to pair somebody with Aaron Nola. Patrick Corbin was phenomenal a year ago. Um, I think he was fifth or sixth in the NL Cy Young voting. 315 ERA, 247 FIP, over 200 innings. The K rate jumped from a career best 8.4 strikeouts per nine to 11.1 uh, a season ago. The slider was outrageous. Um, I'll just give you this real quick. He threw it 41.5% of his total pitches, which was a significant increase from his previous high. He was throwing it about a quarter of the time. Of anyone who threw 1,000 pitches last year, his 50.3% breaking ball percentage was the most only behind Clayton Kershaw. And 195 of his 246 strikeouts came on the slider. Let me just say that one more time. 195 of his 246 strikeouts were finished on the slider. It was arguably the most dominant pitch in baseball last season. I think that he would be a great fit here. I wonder at what point you have to say the money's insane. We know that he visited Washington. We know that he visited the Yankees. We know he's from Syracuse and the family's Yankees fans. Like, If it takes six years, $150 million to seal the deal on Patrick Corbin, do you go there after really just one outstanding year that happened to come in a contract year? Are you comfortable with that? or um, Where are you at on Patrick Corbin? I, I like Patrick Corbin. Um, always have liked Patrick Corbin. Even before la- even before last season, but when you start saying six years and a really big ridiculous dollar figure, that starts to make me wonder. You're like, eh, do I really want? I mean, he's entering. This is the prime years for for a pitcher. There's no doubt about that, right? Um, but I liked him. You know, I liked him before his injury. I thought like he had a really nice 2013. Uh, he was an all star that year. Uh, threw over 200 innings. Then he had Tom, was Tommy John, I believe, uh, missed the entire 2014 season, came back at the second half of the 2015 season, was okay, and then struggled in 16 and 17. Really struggled in those, in those two years. And maybe it was because he had to kind of figure out his pitching again, how to do it, because he probably couldn't throw the way he did pre-surgery. And then all of a sudden last year, he figured it out. Um, best strikeout numbers of his career. Um, and like you said, that slider became nasty. So, like, I, I like him. I do. Um, I don't know I can go, if I can go six years. Five scares me, <laughs> to, to be honest. But I, under, I get it if you have to give him the fifth year 
to you know to sign him. But boy, six years is that's a long time for a pitcher. That's a long time for a guy that you expect to log you two hundred innings a season. Uh, I I just Joe Giglio made a point. Let me just run this by you. Go ahead. Uh, he made a point that Patrick Corbin's career arc is similar to that of Cliff Lee's. Um, I'm not asking, do you think that Patrick Corbin is Cliff Lee? But I guess I am asking you, is it outside the realm of possibility that Patrick Corbin gives you, let's just say, I, I guess I want to look at it a different way. Let's say Patrick Corbin gives you three really, really good years. And then the fourth and fifth years are eh, whatever. And then that sixth year is kind of a disaster. You know, at that point, he's 35, 36 years old, and it's kind of over. And he's, he's sort of hanging on as a fifth starter. Is, is that something that you would do knowing that information? Because like, I think that Patrick Corbin's going to give you two awesome years, and I think that year three is going to be decent, and then after that, I, I really don't know. So, you know, are you willing to run the risk of, of paying two, three years of 60 to $90 million for a question mark? Because I, I think that that's ultimately what this is. That's, no. that's the way I gauge this. No, I, I don't, and I don't agree with Joe that he's Cliff that he's got a Cliff Lee arc. Um, you want to go with pitchers that are that he's got similar statistics to. Uh, this is according to Baseball Reference. Here's some names: similar pitchers through age 28. Uh, John Neese. <laughs> legend. Yeah, that's legend. Yeah, Eric Hansen from the Mariners. Wade Miley, Matt Garza. You know, Charles Nagy, Jared Washburn. I mean, they're serviceable guys, but they're serviceable middle-of-the-rotation guys. Now, I think Corbin's probably got a little bit more than than a lot of these guys do, but not a lot more than a lot of these guys do. Yeah, and I think that the comparison between Corbin and Lee's is more born out of the fact that in 20, uh, 2008, that was Lee's age 29 year that's where he kind of busted out he went from the previous season having a 6-2-9 ERA down to 2-5-4 he was an all-star he was one of the best pitchers in baseball went 22-3 and and then he put together a run of you know three four seasons from there where he was one of the best in the game Uh, I guess that it's more just about the age struggling early to kind of figure it out he had showed promise at one point but then got hurt like in 2005 as a 26 year old he had one really good year and then he struggled again And, and so like the up and down early on in the mid-20s into the later 20s and then hitting this point where you turn 30 and you really figured it out for a few years. It is reasonable to think that that's exactly what Corbin has done and is going to do. Um, I just don't know, man. When you get into talking about six years with a pitcher, and even with all the money that the Phillies had to spend, I don't know that I want to get into a bidding war on Patrick Corbin. It just doesn't necessarily seem to me that that value is going to be there with him. I think that you can go out and get second, third-tier guys that aren't as good, aren't as sexy, don't have the big name, but can still give you reasonably effective production. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I, You know, the other name that, that we haven't even talked about um, – and it kind of relates to Patrick Corbin. Um, and it's because it's just kind of been sitting like off in the distance and it hasn't really been mentioned just yet. But um, as of tomorrow, uh, the team, all 30 major league teams can start talking um, to uh, Kikuchi. Uh, you say Kikuchi. Yeah. Um, 
the pitcher from Japan who, uh, and there's a 30-day window to negotiate with him. This is a new thing, and there's a new posting system that where, you know, the per- there's a percentage of money that goes to the team as opposed to, like, a, a, a maximum posting fee. Um, so, really, he doesn't have to sign with anybody until the beginning of January. Um, he's only 27. And there's a guy that maybe if you're willing to if you're willing to take a chance on, do you take a chance on a guy like him um, for on a five or even six year deal at 27? And then it's not so you're not really carrying him into the later years of his career when he might not have anything left, when he still might you know give you something. I don't know. I think that it's it's cer- certainly a possibility as well. And I think that the Phillies could use that as a another option. Um, yeah, I think this is really also a come down to it's really going to come down to what Corbin does, how the market settles. I mean, do you want to get into the J Hap conversation? And there's other options out there. I think that one thing that you have to kind of keep in mind too is the fact that you have prospects like Adonis Medina still sitting down there, who the Phillies have been willing to trade. It was reported that he was going to be included in a Manny Machado package this past summer. So what does that bring you back? JoJo Romero, who I know struggled a little bit in his brief appearances in the major leagues um, in 2018, does, does that net you anything? Can you go that route and maybe make a trade for a starting pitcher? I think there are other avenues to explore. There is life after Patrick Corbin. Again, I'd be excited if they did it, but I just don't, I don't want to get crazy on him. There are certain guys where I'd say, like, you've got to go all in, push all your chips to the middle of the table. And show him what's up. I just don't think it's this guy. I don't think that he's the guy that it's 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 worth going all in for. So it sounds like we're in agreement there. Yeah, I think we are. I think we are. Hey, I want to throw one last thing back at you, Gene Segura wise. Okay. One last thing. Just just want to throw it back at you, guys. Like I'm about to get ambushed here. No, no ambush. Does it concern you at all that the guy's 29 years old, has been in five organizations already, has been traded four times, and has had a problem? in the past with uh, with some teammates and the manager. Like, there was, you know, we know last year he had the big blow-up with D. Gordon, who's, you know, from all other accounts, one of the nicest guys in baseball, right? And, and you have Gene Segura getting into a fight with D. Gordon, and, you know, reports are he didn't really get along with the manager out in Seattle either. So does any of that kind of kind of play into this for you at all, be a little of, a, of any concern? Yeah, I think it's a complete concern. Um I think that, especially with the manager, you know, we haven't used the name Gabe Kapler in this podcast until just now. Just now. (laughs) Unbelievable. Uh, I I think that Gabe Kapler, this is going to be such an interesting year for him. And I don't want to get too off track. Just to answer your question, I mean, I think guys either really mesh with Gabe Kapler or they're going to go, what the hell is this? I could see this being a complete, complete problem. Yeah, I could. I I think that that's something that, that certainly plays into it. So, yeah, I think that's something you have to consider. Uh, by, there are numerous reports that he's had issues with teammates in the past, as you said, and, yeah, I think that that is something you have to consider. At the yeah. end of the day, I want to see production. I, I don't need choir boys and everybody to be best friends, but I do think that there is something to be said for uh, a clubhouse that gets along and, is, and you know, has a good relationship. But that only takes you so far. I think you saw that with the 2018 Phillies. They liked each other, and, and how'd that turn out? So Right. You know, we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I think that I look at that as a red flag. Yeah, I, I, I think always that, do. I think that's uh, certainly a fair point. I always look at characters, a, a you know, questionable characters, a red flag. No matter how good a player is, 
I always think that, you know, even, even a really, really good player who, you know, doesn't, you know, can confront who can fracture a locker room or a clubhouse, um, can have a, neg- a negative impact. And I'll give you just the one example that we've experienced here in Philadelphia. And we got the best of and the worst of and back-to-back years was Terrell Owens, right? I mean, the one year he was a choir boy and Eagles went to the Super Bowl. And the very next year he started a rift between himself and the quarterback and split the locker room on two sides and the Eagles sucked, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, so... So I mean that that it's that simple. I mean you could be that good of a player, and have that happen, and uh, you know so it makes you it just makes you wonder, makes you a little concerned. That's also, I just want to recap uh, for everybody before we get out of here. Uh, Gene Segura is uh, not that good of a hitter. He's not very good defensively. Um, I didn't say he's uh, not a good see. hitter. What else? Uh, Juan Acasio sucks. Uh, James Pazza sucks. This trade was terrible. And uh, <laughs> hey, have a good night, Phil's fans. Uh, no, no, I think that your concerns are legitimate. I, I'm just messing with you. I, I do get yeah. it. I, I just look at the product, uh, the overall product of this, and I, I think it's a win as we sit here now, but but uh, we will see. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I, it could, like I said, it could lead to, it could ultimately be a win. Um, but I think it's something that we can't just sit there and say, yeah, this is an awesome trade until we see what the hell else happens. Absolutely. So anyway, well, hey, Bob, it was good to, good to do this again. I have a good feeling that we're going to be doing this uh, frequently uh, over the next couple of weeks. I have a yeah, feeling that, that this so. is uh, not going to be a two-week break that we're about to hit here. No, I think this. I think December is going to be a busy month for us, and yep. that's good. That's good. And uh, so, you know, hopefully the the audience is enjoying uh, the latest edition of Crossed Up. And as a reminder, uh, check out the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcasting Network. Uh, I will once again say, check out Snow the Goalie. Uh, our numbers are increasing dramatically with each episode um uh, i think people are starting to to find that uh, they're getting really good hockey coverage on crossing broad and so therefore uh we're starting to steal all those hockey fans from everywhere else so that's a good thing um the the soccer guys they did a crossover podcast uh recently i think it was just yesterday i'm sure Um, it was great uh, Crossing Broad FC and uh, and it's always soccer in Philadelphia. They you know two separate podcasts who did a little bit of a crossover podcast. Gotta love that stuff with soccer. And then we all we still have, although Kyle's been busy as hell with everything else, uh, we still have the Crossing Broadcast, which is the um, uh, the main podcast for Crossing Broad. Um, but lately, you've been getting these episodes on that on their feed, which is not a bad thing. Hey, it's good for us, right? We get we get an, uh, an extra audience that can listen to what we have to say. Um, so you might hear this episode on the next Crossing broadcast, or you might hear Russ with Kevin Kincaid, or Kyle might tune in, or one of us might jump on. We don't know. We don't know what yeah, it's going to be. Big Eagles game tonight at Lincoln Financial Field, which I'm yeah. about to go watch. So uh, we'll see yeah. if they hop on after that one uh, and, and give maybe you, give you something. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, check out all the uh, Crossing Broad podcast networks. Uh, all the sh- podcasts on the Crossing Broad podcast network. Hey, uh, subscribe. Uh, we're going to ask you. I do. We do. Russ goes crazy with this on on. Um, uh, on Snow the Goalie, but I, I won't go as nutty as him. But I will ask you to, uh, w- you know, if you like what we have here, subscribe to the podcast, uh, leave us a review, um, uh, and even uh, leave us a comment um, because that does always help. The more we, the more reviews we get, the higher up the rankings we go, and the more people will be uh, able to tune into what we got, uh, what we got to say. So, um, so yeah, so that's pretty much it. 
So uh, for Bob, who's going to go watch the Eagles, and uh, I'm Anthony. I will probably also go watch the Eagles, but I'm going to eat dinner first because I'm starving. Uh, <laughs> thanks for tuning in to another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, and we will see you soon.